every interaction matters. And it's never about, at the moment, it's only a accounting problem, or it's never about a small thing. It's never about a project. It's when you're in people's homes. Okay, let's use an example. You're down here, we're here sitting here in Florida. Okay. With the holidays coming up, if you're a grandparent and your grandkids are about to show up for the holidays, if you're gonna spend Hanukkah together, Christmas, whatever. If the pool project is not ready, it's not about the pool project. It's about people's views of the grandkids are showing up. They're here to have that experience, create memories with the grandparents. And when we're late with the pool project, that's a problem. Everyone, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is a return guest and one of my favorite people that I've known professionally and probably one of my favorite people I've really gotten to know throughout my life, uh, David Diestel. And he's the chief executive officer of First Service Residential. During his almost two decades with the company, David has been instrumental in building the foundation of the First Service brand and how they operate today. As CEO, he guides First Service's associates to drive the overall success and growth of the company's client portfolio in markets throughout North America. David's mission is to build upon the culture of excellence, dedicated people, and the common goal to make a difference for those who have entrusted their communities to First Service Residential's care. He currently lives in South Florida, where he enjoys traveling, running, and spending time with his wife and two teenage sons. Now, it's always cool when you get to know a person, both professionally, but also personally, and just see how they move through the world. And David's just one of those people that I just feel like you want someone like that to be a CEO. Great ethical core, just really, really a decent person, fun, funny, and genuinely cares about what he does. This is an awesome conversation, and I'd, I'd really recommend it for people who might feel like, oh, you know, like corporate people, you know, they've got this kind of cartoonish version of corporate people. I don't want to say I've never met anyone like that. In fact, I totally have. But for anyone I've met like that, who's that kind of cartoonish person of a corporate uh, person, on the flip side, there's always people like David who are just real, authentic, super decent. This is an awesome conversation. But before we get to it, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. My name's Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Welcome back to the show. Uh, today's guest is someone who is a long-term colleague and friend of mine, as someone who also I've watched their career blossom as they've moved through the organization, and it has been super cool. So with that, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. All right, so for the uninitiated people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Um, David Diestel. I, today, am the CEO of First Service Residential. Okay, what is... <laughs> I know this is a complex, it's a difficult question, and yeah. anyone from First Service Residential is listening is probably already laughing. What the heck does First Service Residential do? Oh man, so <laughs> we are a service business, we're a people business, and we manage people's communities. We're in their homes, in their lives each and every day. So our business is we keep the lights on, we manage these communities all the way from Miami to Vancouver. 
which is super wild. So it is a um, across two countries in Canada and the United States. And um, you manage things from like, we say like small residential things all the way up to like really high end buildings. Yeah, absolutely. So in Vancouver, love the Canadians. They're called we Strata. Love, we, love the Canadians. we love Canadians. We love Canadians. Strata corporations. Think of all those beautiful high rises in Vancouver, Toronto, as well as in the U.S. as uh, large HOAs, homeowner association, resort style living here in Florida. So it's communities of all shapes and sizes. Uh, what's different about our business is this is what people they live, they own these homes, and every day they're counting on us and our teams to deliver what they need. What I've noticed with our teams, people have chosen to live in communities that resonate with. And so our job and what our team does is we've got to serve them the way they want to be served in those communities. Yeah, it's such a wild business model because if you think of like most businesses where you would meet your audience or your consumer would be in like a quote unquote like workplace, like, you know, uh, it, it would be in a manufacturing place or it'd be in a restaurant <laughs> or it would be like wherever that you would, you would meet someone. As an example, my, my work, I meet people like in their offices or on Zoom when they're coming from an office. We meet in a either a virtual space or a physical space, but it's always very work-related. You literally work in people's homes. And not only that, it's that what a home could mean in all sorts of different geographic locations. Yeah, absolutely. It, you think about how people are when they're in their own space. Yeah. Uh, what they expect, how they interact, and it's everywhere from how they see themselves. And so they want to enjoy their homes. They want to feel safe in their lives. They want to feel proud. Like when they're uh, at a time in their life, whether it's their parents, friends show up, um, we're responsible for making sure their lives are what they expect it to be in their homes, in those communities. And like what's wild about that too is you're dealing with people probably when they've come home from work. Yes. Right? So yes. they're like, they're not in a work mindset, <laughs> but they're dealing with you in your work mindset. That's right. And it's part of that. And there is a huge part of our communities that we manage where these people who are passing work out, they have a lot of time. And they've chosen these lifestyle communities because it is so active. They are there all day. And we saw this through the pandemic. People were home. Uh, it was a highly emotional time in people's lives. And our team was there showing up. Um, just amazingly, when I see what our teams do each and every day. Um, but that's our business. Cool. Business. I got all sorts of questions because there's a, a piece that we got to add into this as well is that you yeah. are still the relatively new CEO. Uh -huh. So when did you take over being CEO? Uh, it was a year ago today. That is so crazy. Yeah. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. How long have you been in the business? Uh, it's been 20 years. Okay. And where did you start? Um, I started, so I got married 20 years ago, got married, graduated and started my first day up in Toronto at our corporate office. Oh my God. So like yes, how, how, tight, how tight was that? Oh my God. Uh, it was 30 days. Graduated May 1st, got married May 12th. And I'll never forget this. Um, first of my boss at the time, Tim Greener said to me, your first day, June 2nd, can you have kids along the way? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was a wonderful time. So yes, I took the red eye back from the honeymoon and started at First Service. So that was 20, yeah, 20 years ago. How did you hear about First Service? Because it's a very unique kind of niche uh, business. Uh, what I've always known and believed, um, it was all about 
I've always felt someone's reputation, you never know when opportunity, and you gotta make the most of it. So at that time, I'd gone back to school. I was part of uh, University of Toronto, I was at the Rotman School, and I was a pain in the ass at the school. I was very involved. I We had formed a student group, we were writing, we were involved, yeah. writing papers to the dean about how we could improve the place. And one day I was sitting in the lobby, uh, start of second year, and I noticed somebody at the door. And this gentleman went open the door, can I help you? He said, yes, here I am, I'm so-and-so. And I walked him to his new office. Turns out he was running the program. He was the new executive director of the MBA program. I introduced myself, I said, I'm David, I run the place. He was like, ah, a student, a student, I'm here to serve you. I was like, great. He and I became friends. And over that year with him in his role, um, he brought me into many things in running the school. I helped him interview, he sought my advice. I just got involved. And one day I had a job at a bank, second year, and I said to him, I, go, I can't. I have a job at a bank, and he said, what do you want to do? And I gave him my, my spiel, and he said to me, oh, you need to meet first service. You should never at that moment say, who's first service? I didn't know. And he said, listen, go meet them. And then I had a chance to meet, he introduced me, met the leadership team, and it turns out he was on the board of first service, and it's been an incredible career. So it is a life lesson I've always said, your reputation as a leader, um, and you never know. You never know and seize every opportunity. Well, first of all, I didn't know, I've known you for years, I didn't know that story. I, I had known parts of that mm. story, but there was basically like a chance meeting that introduced me to this. Can I tell you how I got into coaching? Go, go, go. Okay. So I had been a therapist for about 10 years. I was burnt out, but I was never burnt out on client work. I love client work, I love helping but I was bur burnt out on the leadership culture and not-for-profits. And like, I'm not saying every not-for-profit is the same, but I'd worked at three not-for-profits and all the road, all the road experienced the same thing, was oh. that there's not money in not-for-profits often to, to train leaders on the art of leadership, right? They go for like a leadership training yeah. once a year for like a day or something. And so you have people who used to be therapists uh, or maybe who are still practicing a bit who are, probably were really good therapists, but are suddenly leaders, leading therapists and leading this thing. Yes. They don't have a lot of like built-in track record of leading like big organizations. And they don't have someone who's there who's like helping them with their leadership. And so you'd find these cultures where it's like, I know you're a good person, but like, why are you like, this is a terrible environment. So interesting. So I was burnt out, like just yeah. burnt out. Cause like we had the, this leader at the time who was such like cartoonish leader, like not a bad guy, but like if you got in his bad books, he would come in on the weekend and change your office to the bad office. And there was always like the shitty office. That he would this was your first? This is my third, this is my third, oh, third. not-for-profit because I kind of scaled up throughout the years. Anyways, I was just like, I'm done with this. Like it's too, this whole world, this whole not-for-profit world, at least from what I experienced was too, too wild. And I was thinking like, you know, I just need a change, but I don't know what that change is. And I still want to help people. And so I took my dog for a walk and I was literally mulling it over my head. And I have a, a wiener dog named Blue. He's like literally a blue. He looks like a little wine reiner, but a wiener dog. So I'm walking down the street with them and I come to this light and there is a couple there. And they're like, oh, we love your dog. But I'm in East Vancouver, so I'm not like out trying to chat with people. I'm like, oh, hey. But they were like really chatty. So eventually I started talking with them. And uh, the husband of the couple was like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm a therapist. He's like, oh, do you like it? And I was like, 
yeah, I love helping people, but I think I'm ready for a change. Hmm. He was like, oh, um, I run a coaching firm and we're looking for a therapist to come help rework all our coaching programs. Would you be interested in interviewing? And I was like, yes. I had never heard of executive coaching before. That's I was like, yes, I would. And he sent me all this stuff and I did some research and I went and did this thing. Next thing you know, I ended up in the coaching firm, worked there for five and a half years, kind of learned it, which is where you and I met. And then I went and launched Cadence. I entered in an industry I had never heard of with a CEO or a business owner at that time that I had just been like met on the street, totally active, like I totally knew what I was talking about. And it's been a career changing experience for me just by taking the leap and going with it. So it's yeah. a bit Isn't of a similar that story. Amazing? Yeah. Chance meeting? Chance meeting, uh, totally chance meeting. Something I've always believed, that you, your reputation and every opportunity in front of you, uh, take it, never know. Well, the saying no, uh, you know, there's all those kind of cliche things. It's like, you know, if you don't ask, the answer is no, right? Like, oh, like, yeah, okay. But really, like, if you don't go with it, at least, at least take a leap, then you're only ever playing within the same little realm of possibilities. If you want to, like, enhance or expand that realm of possibilities, you've got to take oh, leaps. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> listening to you, it did remind me of the big decision to move down to Florida. I'd been in the role at first service, it was about four years, and uh, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And that, and what you described, that bold leap, leap of faith, there was a component of why not? Like, I, I think back to then, okay, you need to understand, we lived across the street from my in-laws. You know, this was about ripping the grandchildren from the arms of the grandparents. Canadians don't leave Canada. Yeah, totally, uh, totally. And I had this incredible opportunity back then to help build what is today first service residential. And it was a, it was a tough decision back then. And, you know, my wife, incredibly supportive. And at the same time, it was, okay, do we want to do this? What's the opportunity? And, you know, looking back then, um, there was a component of what you talked about, which is, let's try it. Why not? Uh, this is such an opportunity, and if it doesn't work out, it's okay. It's okay. Um, but how old were the kids then? Uh, two and three. Okay, so tough. Two it was three. tough for the in-laws, but they were so young that they wouldn't have necessarily noticed it. So it was a good time to take a leap like that for the kids. Yes. Yeah, yeah that part was fine. Um, and it was more about uh, you know how we wanted to live our lives, where we are, friends and family, yeah, moving to... Now, what was interesting about Florida was we felt like we knew Florida. Oh, it's the United States. And of course, it should be the same. And uh, just culturally, it was different. Uh, and it did take us a while to adjust to life in Florida. Um, for me, it was relatively easy, busy. We were busy building a business, had a great team. Um, but personally, for my wife, the kids getting settled, um, it took a couple of years. Uh, what was the job that you came down for? Um, at that time, uh, the leadership team of First Service, it was being the junior ops guy. I was the um, director of strategy and operations. Really what that was, was being in a team of four. There was four of us and we were mapping out First Service residential. And I didn't realize back then what it meant today to be CEO. Back then we were thinking differently about the business. Where can we take the business? How do we... Um, make acquisitions, how do we grow, what does service look like? And it was really defining it. 
So to have been part of that back then in those early days, uh, Scott Patterson and I whiteboarding what the structure could look like, what this, what our brand could be. Um, it's just wow, like to be here today with you. What? Because we met, I think shortly after you, yeah. shortly after you had moved, like within a couple of years of, of when you had moved. Yes, you were running. Yes. you were in that space. Um, and when I first met you, I was like, oh, cool, like definitely, definitely a cool guy. But the thing that I'd always thought about you was like when we would speak, you had so much in your head. <laughs> and when you were putting out a conversation, yeah. I was like, when this guy speaks, it's like he's setting a meal that I want to eat. But I want to eat either pizza or spaghetti. And he's bringing out an extra large pizza with spaghetti on top of it. And I was like, this is too much. I like everything that's involved here, but it's too much. And then as I've gotten to, to know you and watched you over the years, the change in focus and how you still have so much going on. Like you're always thinking like so much further ahead, but your ability to distill it down and be like, here's where we're at. This is what we're talking about has, has changed. Is that because you worked on it or is that just been a natural evolution as you've gone along? Yeah, I believe it was, it's always been innate for me uh, to get, I've always had a gift, I can say, which was getting the right things done at the moment. Right. And I do have a lot of thoughts in my head. It creates a lot of personal stress for me. And it's something I've, I would say it's innate and learned. It's innate and learned. You can only do so many big things yeah. at the same time. When I think back to those early years, I was really only working on one or two things a year. Like as we were transforming, uh, it was I had the chance to launch our brand. That took two years. Yeah. Back in, oh my God, we thought about it. We started to think about it in 11. In 12, we put the plan together and we did it in 13. But at that time, it was uh, the importance of understanding the people's headspace. So our leaders can only absorb so much. Uh, an organization can only absorb so much change at the same time you grab a vision. So it is something I continue to believe in and, and do with the team, but it does keep me up. It, it is stressful when you think about all the things that as leaders we think about and what coming at us on a daily, daily basis. What was like super interesting about that brand launch though was like, of course there was like an external brand launch, but I felt no. like it was like almost no. more internal. No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the external, uh, such a small part. <laughs> it was at that time, we were taking 23 of our different companies with names and brands. And at that time, I think back to the owners, we, we made acquisitions. They had the owner's names still on the company. Yeah, yes, yes. This was all about that change to come under a unified message and brand. And, you know, as I sit here today looking back, uh, I didn't truly, truly appreciate what a brand meant. At that time, it was a, we're going to change the name. Don't worry about it. And now to see that it is truly a brand and what we're known for, uh, lots of learning, but it was all about the internal change. Like the yeah. only way I can relate it uh, is like, you know, when like you're at a party and you're introducing yourself, like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a ram, it's like who I am, is what I do. It's like, instead of doing that at a party, you're just doing that with yourself. Yeah, like, yeah. Looking in a mirror, I'm a ram, this is what I do. This is how I dress. This is what I believe. It's like, and watching you and the uh, team Russell, all of these companies and all these huge personalities into this thing. Like, what did you learn about bringing people together and getting people to believe in kind of like a vision and a brand? Yeah. Like, what did you take away from that? Yeah. It, 
we have, our leaders are so committed. Like at the end of the day, this was all about our focus on our people and what we do to serve our residents and our board members. And so we were united. And so what I learned is that making our leaders understand what this was about. This was about telling our incredible story to the market and our growth. And I'll never forget this. The decision we made was we need to go on a roadshow and just sit and have conversations with our leadership teams. Walk them through this. Um, because doing things by email or a PowerPoint deck didn't work. Yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. work. And I had the world's greatest project plan, I promise you, and Gantt charts, we were there, and nobody was believing. Of course. Nobody was believing. And it wasn't until Scott and I, Scott said to me, let's, let's go on the road. We need to spend time with our leadership team so they truly understand what we're doing here. And when we did get that belief and we understood this was about telling our story, um, we had too many examples of our clients, board members showing up, three different business cards and names, and you know it's never a good meeting when everyone, you spend the whole meeting trying to explain who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, today, so human behavior um, is the key. And once our leaders understood, um, it was like, hell yeah, we're in. It's interesting you say that because you have some of the most like quirky, interesting people I've ever met working <laughs> in this business. Like people who I know and love, just admire, think they're the great, but like true personalities who were business owners. They built up a business that yes. had its name. Like it was their thing. It's like kind of like mm -hmm. as if someone bought Cadence and was like, hey, like it's not Cadence anymore, it's this. Having been worked with people through a lot of acquisitions, like I totally get it, I understand that. But I remember at that time thinking, how are we gonna get you know, X person's name. How do you get that person to stop calling their business this company oh. and actually start following the specific brand and like believe that and not even follow, but believe in it. Yeah. Like how did you make that shift that these like really determined, iconic kind of by their own bootstraps build something to now say, oh no, I believe in this bigger vision. Yeah. It was really what everybody was asking for. What these leaders at the time was asking for is, hey, what are all the tools? What are the things we can do to grow? And they were equity owners. They still are owners in the business with a vested interest in growing. And so when I walked them through, hey, this simplifies what you do. Every time we want to roll out a new training program, you want to rebrand it. You want to change the logos 15 times, and then you want to recreate it. It's not efficient. It's not what you need to grow. And so um, by really working with leaders to truly understand what their needs are, um, how do we grow our business together? Uh, that was what, in the end, drove the success of the brand. When they could see the power of what we could create together. So after the success in that role, which I know was like a huge thing, you and the team did that mm -hmm. time. And I know the leaders did. People came together yes. to make that happen. The, biz the business noticeably changed. Like mm -hmm. the feel of it. And as an outside contractor, just interacting with all of you, and this is like a different piece more sophisticated. It still had that like kind of like small business owner feel to it, but it was just a totally different beast. So after that success, what was the next step for you? What was the next role that you took on? Yeah, once we, uh, once we had launched our brand, uh, the next evolution for us is, okay, what does service look like? 
at first it was residential. Like, how do we take, uh, you see around us some branding, yeah. right? It can't be words on paper. Yeah. It has to be real. People have to feel it and want to be part of this organization. Um, so the next step we took as a leadership team was saying, okay, how do we keep our brand and our values alive? Yeah. And that's when we realized, okay, we need first call, which today is our daily reinforcement. We have lineup that happens because at the end, it's our team. What we've created has to resonate with our teams everywhere. Yeah, and let's unpack first call here because I, and for people who, who um, don't know about first service or are familiar with this kind of thing, um, the psychology of working with big groups of people and having people that could be on, like, let's say people in Florida. Yes. And then people all the way up in Vancouver, essentially being part of the same thing. And you're part of this giant organism. You stay who you are, what you believe, who you are, like all your individual stuff. But you're part of this greater whole that's working together. And the importance of like creating something that doesn't have a uniformity that sucks, but mm -hmm. has like a community feel that's like inspires and drives people. I think first call is an important part of that. And like how companies can use that kind of thing just to get people like focused on that, like, hey, here's our greatest mission. So what is First Call? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And First Call is our daily reinforcement where our teams get together. We talk about our values, our missions. We celebrate. We, we gives us an opportunity to tell customer stories. What it really does is it unifies our organization. Yeah. It unifies in a common language. And I love what you said about it being authentic and each leader or team owns it. This isn't, there is a, we provide a, a script every day. Um, the best teams, the best teams, take it, make it their own. And uh, at the beginning, I'll, I can share this with you and your audience. I was twisted. Operationally, I didn't get it. I was like, okay, what's the hierarchy? What time are we gonna have it? And um, we, <laughs> we worked with this wonderful firm, Master Connections, that does this for other great service organizations. And uh, I just remember Cindy Navardi saying, just, it'll happen, don't. Uh, and I couldn't get my operational brain wrapped around it. And uh, finally, we took this leap of faith, we brought our leaders together, and they were, we got this. Yeah. And in the end, it just happens organically. And that, that's what's so great about it. Because teams need to make it their own at the same time, have a framework to have conversations. Well, the first time I, I saw it, I, don't know where I, was. <laughs> were you? I think I was in New Jersey with uh, this, uh, again, for people who don't know, this really wonderful leader who was on the podcast before, uh, Michael. And uh, <laughs> I was in a meeting room and he was like, okay, hey, it, it's it's uh, time for uh, first call. And I was like, okay. I was taking notes. He's like, no, come come with me. And I was like, oh, well, like, I'm just like an outside contractor. He's like, everyone does it. We're all in this together. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I went with him and I was like, oh, no, this is cool. Like, I don't do this job every day, but now I feel like I'm like, the job that I'm about to do with you just took on a little bit of a different dimension. I also like that he was just like, no, everyone in the building does it. We do it. You're here, you're a guest. It doesn't matter. You can do it. I'm glad you brought it up because today, as I travel to our offices, that is what jumps out of me. I can show up at any office to just participate, hear what's important to the teams uh, within our culture, like who is first service residential? How do you create that? And um, as we continue our journey around being a more inclusive organization, how do we truly make this place that 
people just want to be. And that's such an important part. We stand for something. Well, because it goes back to what does first service residential do? Whenever I kind of push on you about that, about mm-hmm. how you can answer that, you always go back to, well, it's like, it's a, it's a people. I know businesses say that, mm-hmm. but really your business actually is fundamentally your people and how they approach approach with working with people in their homes. Because yeah. again, like getting not getting away from that idea is like, your home is when you're like the most you, you version of it. It's like the mm-hmm. least dressed up version of you, both the good and the bad. And to have a workforce that can like meet people where they're at in their homes and like how they're going to mentally be in their homes is a really impressive feat. And I think that idea of mm-hmm. truly like first service residential is like an actual real deal people business, like uh, in the truest of forms. Oh, you know, we have 18,000 associates, which is insane. It's, That's wild. And, you know, 10,000 plus are at property, at communities every day. And, what I've always believed is that every interaction matters. And it's never about, at the moment, it's only a accounting problem, or it's never about a small thing. It's never about a project. It's when you're in people's homes. Okay, let's use an example. You're down here, we're here sitting here in Florida. Okay, with the holidays coming up, if you're a grandparent, and your grandkids are about to show up for the holidays. You're going to spend Hanukkah together, Christmas, whatever. If the pool project is not ready, it's not about the pool project. It's about people's views of the grandkids are showing up. They're here to have that experience, create memories with the grandparents. And when we're late with the pool project, that's a problem. And it's not as simple as a project. You know, when I first moved down to Florida from Toronto, I told you about that big move, ripping the grandkids. My in-laws were coming to visit us. It was a big deal. The management company put a lien on our home. Put a lien on our home. And, okay, fine. What that meant was, for those of you not in this business, we couldn't finish the swimming pool. Now, I'm in the business. I get it. Do you know how upsetting it was for my wife? Like, she just moved here. It's a foreign country. I know it's still the United States. And in that moment, it was just an accounting mistake. Somebody just forgot to check the box. It's never about that. So whatever our team's roles are, well, we need to have that deep empathy for our homeowners, our residents, what they're going through in their lives. Because as we're interacting with them, if we lose the package, it's not a package. It could be their medicine. It could be whatever is happening in that moment for that individual. And that's my hope for our brand and all of our team members is we have a team that understands that, understands that that's our responsibility. So what you're talking about, though, is super challenging. So uh, you and I were talking about the difficulty that I face scaling up my business, mm. right? Because my business is so based mm. on my personality, how I interact with people, the value that we bring. And as the company grows, bringing in other coaches, other instructors, people do things, it's really hard because at the end of the, at the, end of the day, mm-hmm. are they going to engage, are they going to be able to make people feel the value and the mm-hmm. feeling they have of working with me? Mm-hmm. Now, I take that, mm-hmm. I put that across 25 people. Oh, yeah. And we're talking about, we're going to say 10,000 people who interact with people in their mm-hmm. home. How do you get, 
how do you create a culture where a um, empathy and understanding are at the core of it empathy and understanding the ability to express it i should say is the communication piece because you can have empathy and understanding but you might not be able to express it so how do you create and maintain an organization where at the core empathy and understanding the ability to express it is part of the culture in, and is trained but also how do you hire people across north america who work in all sorts of different kinds of uh, the different communities, different cities, different regions, but at different, you know, every region and city has its own kind of feel and all that. How do you have consistency of, of, of people being able to do that? Yeah, the end, it's about the leadership. It does start at the top. It does start at the top because as a starting with me, and when our entire leadership team believes it's important, I am starting there because that, unifying belief that we need people in our organization, that every interaction matters, ultimately will be our success. And now, how do you do that at scale is the question. So with 18,000, you know, we, we do have first call, which is a reinforcement of the values of what's important for us, but also systems and tools that make sure we're hiring, recruiting the right people. So. Uh, we have we spend a lot of our time and energy on training our teams and our leaders in how to hire, recruit, and onboard. And uh, you know, a few just a few a few things we've done that have been very successful. Our onboarding program, like when somebody shows up that first moment in the in their new role with us, whatever it is, that matters. And what is their experience in the first ninety days? And throughout our organization, that is something we are rolling out, spending more time investing in, because that has shown to make a real difference for us. Um, as well as that pre-screening talent upfront, spending time with them, both at the leadership level, critically important, because as we talked about, having leadership in place uh, that understands and knows how to find talent, recruit talent is important, and that permeates down through the organization. So with all of that in mind, you know, you get, you have this relatively recent shift into being the CEO of the organization. Yes. So with all of the care and diligence you put into like kind of bringing people in, you're still working on it, you're still investing in on it. Um, what have you done for yourself mm. as you've taken on this enormous, enormous role? Uh, it's been quite the year. Uh, I have come to appreciate, I do need to take care of myself as well. Uh, and I did let things slide. So a year ago, uh, I'm trying to think back to what my weight was when you and I last saw each other. Uh, I did let the stress get the better of me. And I'm a, I'm a stress eater. I wasn't exercising and uh, I had allowed myself to drift to a place that I wasn't uh, at my best. And uh, there was a time when I was, ooh, I wasn't feeling um, great. I wasn't at my best. And mostly it was about just feeling great about myself. Uh, my energy level was struggling. I was struggling. And so I did make a decision to turn that around probably six months ago. Um, my wife started looking at me a little different when I was opening the fridge door, my kids. And um, in the role, uh, I just made a decision that I needed to take care of myself in a better way. It's, it's an interesting thing. So, because like it's really important that whenever we, anyone I talk with, anyone, this isn't a, a, a talk about um, body size or body image. 
much. This is more about comfort, getting good about yourself, mm. energy levels. And I believe that you can be a bunch of different sizes, be healthy oh. and all those things. So where I've landed with stuff, being a small business owner, but like my schedule is wild. The person who manages my schedule, Amy, who is an amazing, wonderful person, uh, who I recently made a big error for. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> we missed lunch. Um, whichever, yeah. she, when she first started looking at my schedule, she's like, I don't know how you do this. It's totally wild. And I am 110% stress eater. And um, as soon as my eating goes, mm. my exercise goes. And I talk about these four legs of the chair of wellness. And, and one of them is how you eat, one of them is how much you exercise, one of them is how much social time that you spend, and how much time then that you have for just kind of like, when I say spiritual, it's like some people are religious, some people are free, whatever it is, like you're kind of creative or spiritual. You got to have at least three legs of the chair to have a semblance of health. And yeah. as soon as I started eating bad, boom, exercise is gone. I'm a terrible stress eater, but also I'm ultra busy, so it's hard to find time to exercise. Uh, it's easy to eat crappy when you're super busy because you can just get a hamburger and anything else. But also, I'm getting older, I'm 48. I had, I tore my meniscus last year and I had been struggling with it. I also have like a back injury I've been uh, dealing with as well because both you and I share running. All the stuff that I'd done to take care of myself, couldn't do physically. My doctor literally was like, stop running. Um, I couldn't do that. I've never been like a big like weightlifter kind of guy. I cycle, but it's like a big time commitment, all of those things. Being a CEO of a company, I can say if a small company, I'm a CEO, you're a CEO of a major company, it's very easy for us to say, it's like, gotta take better care of yourself. But how does someone whose schedule is so demanding take care of themselves, spend time with their family, spend social time, and also run a business. Like how do you manage that very intense uh, combination? Yeah, I want to challenge something you just said. Please. Uh, this notion of time, you find it. Tell me more. Tell me how you do it. You, you just find it. Uh, with me, uh, I make a decision, and that's just a decision. Uh, I find it's just a trade-off. And the trade-off for me is set the alarm, you get up. Am I gonna sit, have breakfast, sit on my iPad? Am I gonna go for a run? Everything is just a trade-off and a decision. So I, I'm not minimizing, I hope, I don't sound like I'm minimizing it. Um, I find that it, it is a, uh, a, as simple as a decision and I find time. So when I'm, committed to doing it and I enjoy it. When I am at my best, I love it. Yeah. I'll send, I set my alarm. And even when I'm traveling, when I'm up in Toronto and it's, you know, zero degrees, get up and go for a run. And I find that I am so much more productive and I'm in a better place with it. And uh, I find the same thing with healthy eating. With me, it is an on-off switch. There is no such thing as only half a something, yeah, right? Yeah. I can't, like, there's no such thing as just a couple of French fries. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'm in mode. Right. And so for me, I manage it by saying, okay, I'm in mode. Um, and which means I'm, I'm exercising, I'm eating right, I'm spending time with the team, and everything seems to come together. Um, your point about the stool, the legs of the stool, oh yeah. So I, I will tell you that I think at times I had three legs were missing. Oh, yeah. 
because uh, you didn't mention sleep yet. I find that what happens is sleep goes. And uh, it, what I've learned about sleep is it goes hand in hand. Setting an alarm to get up to run means I am having better sleep. And then, um, anyway, so that, I'm not giving it, it works for me. I'm gonna put, put, push on you. Uh, push on you, it's, it's the timing. You make time, I make time. I started getting up at five to work out at six with that uh, trainer that comes by now. Um, yeah. Wonderful guy named Ed, uh, collector of performance. And he does a really, really good job. This is where I struggle with it, because I travel for work quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So then it's not Ed coming over. Of course, Ed's thing is like, oh, it's no big deal. I'll give you a plan to do when you're on the road. It's like, okay, no, get there. Get in, I get, I say I land in Florida at mm -hmm. 6.30 at night, get to the hotel by 7.30. Uh, Got to eat some kind of food. Then it's like, well, what, I'm going to work at 10.30 at night? No, I'm going to go to bed, go to bed. Time change, all the wildness, get up, got early morning meetings. I could I do that and when I'm at my best, do I do that? Absolutely. Yeah. When I'm at a streak, like, you know, I, I remember flying to uh, Atlanta and just like get there, get to the hotel, drop my stuff off, boom, go for a run, get up the next morning, boom, go for a run, go to my meetings. Am I energized? And as a result, am I eating better? Absolutely. All of it works together. Yes. Yes. So that's me at my best. When I'm at my medium, but when I'm at my down, which is, I'd say like right now from like a physical diet perspective, I'm starting to rally again. I'd say all of my stuff is like peaks, drifts, like I'll either be at the top of the mountain or I'll be in the valley. And when I'm in the valley, I know when I start to rally. Um, but that rally is all about structuring time, structuring diet, doing all these things. It's probably my Achilles heel as a, as a leader is self-care, specifically about diet and exercise. It's the hardest thing for me to maintain. I'm certainly not saying that uh, committing to a, uh, getting up earlier, finding the time. I'm certainly not saying that. I know you can do it, but it's about how you maintain it yes. when the wildness of the worlds that we travel in, the demands in our schedules. So how do you maintain it? Yeah, it, for me, it is that discipline of I, I need to keep a regimen and uh, keep to the schedule. Like I know my body, what works. I cannot work out after I eat. I'm a morning person. Yeah. So I need to find time first thing. Uh, if I miss that window, I also need to be at peace with it uh, that I then next day just stick to the schedule and catch up. But stuff happens in a day. And uh, you can't derail it. I'm, I'm training for a 5K. And it's not just about doing the 5K. It's, okay, how do I get to a whole new level of performance for me? Because I need a goal. Yeah. So driving towards a goal uh, works for me. Yeah. It works for me. The same thing with my eating, um, maintaining the weight. And um, I just find that keeping an eye on it, it, it is an all, what you said about a whole picture. Right. They all go hand in hand. And when I let one thing slide, uh, when I'm not exercising, I don't care as much about the food. Right. And then I start cheating, and then it's a slippery slope. So if we look at it, well, I'll, using what what you added, if we look at it as diet, exercise, diet, exercise, sleep, and social, all of those things. So like the way that I look at the model of the, of the chair is like you know when you're walking around and you're tired, you're like I'm gonna have a good sit. Who doesn't love sitting in a chair if your legs are tired, right? So if you are under a time of big stress, the first thing that typically goes for people are the patterns of self care, right? So your pattern of self-care go. Most people have one leg of the chair that's like 
pretty wavery, you know, at any given time. For me, it's diet, 100%. Sounds like the same for you. Yeah. I love candy and I love baked goods, especially donuts, donuts and pie. I love donuts. So, as soon as that goes, that leg is gone. And there's usually a chain reaction, as I said earlier, about diet. Those two go, sleep goes. Mm -hmm. If you have one leg, you know, when you're sitting, if you're going to sit on a chair, if it's got one leg that's like shorter or missing, you can sit on a chair that has three legs. It's kind of weird, but you can do it. Bit of a balancing act, but it can fully take your weight. Yes. If you have two legs, now you have to use your two legs as the other two legs. So you're not fully relaxed because you have to stabilize. If you have three legs missing, there's no point. It's, it's more of a pain in the ass than trying to sit, so you end up standing. Those legs of the chair and, and like not just maintaining them, but defending them against strength or against stress is like my hardest struggle as a professional. Like finding business, working with clients, all that kind of stuff. That's like fun and interesting. But defending the base of those legs is like nightmare scenario. It's the hardest thing to do. So at the core of that, uh, you, you mentioned stress. I talk about other stress in there as well. Um, how do we manage, like what have you seen being effective in managing stress for you? And how do you, at the very root of it, get ahead of the stress management? What works for you? Well, one of the things that I know just from psychology is there's a, a thing called the long-term stress response. It's kind of like a subsystem of our psychology is that when we're in a situation that we recognize is going to be long-term stressful, like for example, the pandemic, our brains go into this mode called the resistance mode. And there's three parts of it. It's like one is alarm, one is resistance, one's exhaustion. When you're in the resistance mode, it's a really cool mode psychologically to get in because you can handle long-term stress because you become super focused, you can work longer hours, you're super creative, you're ultra collaborative, but all sorts of like really wild things start happening. Um, you start sacrificing sleep because that resistance, the psychology of it is like, well, the less you sleep, the more you can focus. You start either like super eating everything you can or you stop eating because you're trying to preserve food. There's all these basic like really like early people kind of things, like evolutionary things that kick in. The other one that happens is like secular thinking. Your mind takes problems that it knows it can't solve and gets you to focus on those things over and over hmm. and over again so that you stay sharp and you stay in problem solving mode. So it will literally pick like a difficult relationship and you'll start hyper-focusing on that so that you stay sharp. And so these are all tricks in the mind. And they all have like a really good useful tools to keep you sharp. But the problem is then you never ever relax. So secular thinking for me is something that I struggle with a lot. Like I'll just start thinking about something that there's, it's usually something like a past mistake I've made or an error and I'll just like, can't stop thinking about it. Whenever something like that happens, the way that I deal with it and deal with this type of the stress response is I listen to some kind of sci-fi podcast. Oh, that's what you do. Now, you and I are both nerds. We both like yes. sci-fi. Um, I will put in headphones and so like sometimes my partner Monica will see that see me walking around the house with like headphones on a lot and it's just because I'm stressed and I'm stressed so I'm getting into secular thinking and I'm, I start getting locked into something I know I can't fix and I can't stop thinking about it so we put on headphones and I will put on like a four-hour conversation about the wrath of Khan yeah. and just be like tell me more about Ricardo Montalban like I gotta hear about this and it's so indulgent that it allows me to like step out of that secular thinking because it's like a closed circuit kind of way of thinking. It lets me get out of the circuit. And after listening for anywhere from five to 20 minutes, my thinking will be uh, mind again and I can just go on and on about my day. So that's one way I handle it. 
Yeah, the same with, I would say, the Mindless Endurance podcast. Mm-hmm. What's the science of endurance for for me, it's just escape. It's escape. Yeah. Uh, going on these long runs. Um, it's interesting hearing you talk about stress. How would you describe stress versus business challenge that I'm so excited and positive to conquer and manage? Like I, I think back to what creates stress, and is it as simple as mindset? Like we all face as business leaders. You're running your own business. Me, a CEO. There are things that come at us each and every day. And so taking something that's a challenge, figuring it out uh, is a very positive, healthy mindset. Getting stressed out about it, overthinking it. How have you seen other leaders and and how should we think about that? So I have a very specific way that I talk about it and it has to do with how um, lit up your sympathetic nervous system is. So are you familiar with the sympathetic Mm -hmm. nervous system? Go, explain it, remind me. So the, the autonomic nervous system has two pieces. It's part of brain. It has two systems. It's parasympathetic, which governs our states of relaxation and calmness. And I'm just, I'm going to like the most basic form of the conversation. Um, and the sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight. So it's like we've all heard of fight or flight. The way I like to think about it is, is imagine you have a toolbox that's in front of you. And that toolbox has every single thing that you have ever learned in your lifetime. Everything you've learned from school, from your experience as a business leader, uh, everything you learned growing up, everything you learned about being in a long marriage, raising kids, being a person in the community, everything's in that box. And that box has two levels. Top level is your really basic skills, super important, but basic skills. As an example, one would be um, uh, listening to track what someone's saying. So you're just following along with what they're saying. That would be a basic skill. At the bottom of the toolbox are your really nuanced skills. So if we're going to use listening as an example, this one would be listening to understand. So it's different than tracking what someone's saying. It's like understanding and kind of being able to get a little ahead of the conversation. I think this is where it's going, pull different pieces together. In that bottom level of the toolbox would also be things like being able to read a room. So like empathy. Um, It would also include things like um, our ability to negotiate. These would be like bottom of the toolbox tools. So if you think about the sympathetic nervous system, it's like a glass wall that descends from the ceiling. And our parasympathetic nervous system and and the sympathetic nervous system, one is never fully on, the other one's fully on. In fact, they kind of are they're in a constant negotiation with each other. But imagine your sympathetic nervous system. There's a glass wall that comes down and it's always just a little bit lit up. But when you've got something that you want to do good at, and it's a challenge that's that glass wall comes down a quarter of the way. And this is what I call nervousness. People talk to me a lot about nervousness, and I think that I think nervousness is, is maligned a bit. Nervousness mm-hmm. is good in my opinion. It just means you recognize there's a challenge ahead of you and you want to do well. Yes. So it could be a presentation, it could be a interview, it could be a 5K race, it could be a marathon, it could be like in your free dive, it could be anything that you recognize. I want to do good at this. A podcast together. <laughs> a podcast yeah. together, right? <laughs> it could be anything. I'm nervous before every single coaching call I have, yeah. every single one, because I want to do well. So if you think about that, that glass wall is now a quarter of the way down. And that just tells you, okay, I'm nervous. I better reach into my toolbox and use all of the tools I need. It's a good thing. When nervousness turns into anxiety, 
or what I'd say is like deep stress, that glass wall comes halfway down. When people are in an anxious state, they can still reach their toolbox, but they got to go underneath the wall to do it. It comes down just enough that you can't straight reach across. You have to go underneath the wall. Going underneath the wall means your arms, the reach is shorter. You have to go underneath it. So now you can only get to the top of your toolbox. If you have ever found yourself in a situation where you're handling it, but you're not handling it as well as you usually would, it's because you're in an anxiety space rather than being in a nervousness space because you don't have access to all of your tools. When anxiety goes past that point and that glass wall goes down three quarters of the way, you can no longer like reach your toolbox at all. And you're only left with two things, fight or run away. Those are the only things that are left. So nervousness is good. That's that business challenge. Like I want to crush this. I want to do well. I want to hit it. I want to bring everyone together, like, do this thing. You're nervous though. You've got the energy to do it. Yeah. When you're, when you're anxious, you got too much going on. You're stressed. You're like, oh, and you can still do things. You just can't do them with all of your tools. But when you're afraid and you're afraid you're going to fail, uh, or you're afraid of the person you're dealing with, or you're in a situation that is awful, all you can do is fight for and that's it. And those two skills in a very basic way have their own nuances that are involved in them, but basically fighting or running run away. If you're applying those skills in the wrong situation, that's no good. A thing I'd add to that is um, when the sympathetic nervous system gets lit up that high, it's designed to override logical thinking. So that's the intent of the sympathetic nervous system. So if you, you know, if you and I are walking through the jungle for whatever reason, <laughs> and like a tiger jumps out of, jumps out of there, you and I aren't going to go. No, I'm running. Yeah, we're not going to be like, let's try a diagram. What's the best way out of here? We're just going to like, we're just going to run. We're going to run in different directions. We're going to run into trees. We're going to run off a cliff. It's because it overrides logical thinking. So the fight or flight when you're in that space is disastrous. So what I think when I talk about stress, I'm usually talking about anxiety. And that's that creates that closed circuit thinking that gets you to go and, and do stuff. But it's it can be very, very challenging to do it long term in a healthy way. Yeah. I want to do a very, very deep answer for what you asked me. Uh, you know, and I can't wait to find out who can run faster when that tiger is chasing us. I just, I can't wait to find out why you and I would be in a jungle together at any given reason. All right, I, I, I do want to hit on some stuff though I know our audience is going to be interested in. Um, okay, year one as a CEO. I know people are like, oh, how was it? Like the normal questions people want to ask. Let me ask a, ask a different question. So you were, um, a regional president at First Service of Florida for how many years? Yes, so I uh, it was eight years where I was leading the South. Okay, leading the South. You had done that for a long time and had gotten very, very good at it. When you took this role, what did you learn about yourself, both good or bad, that you <laughs> didn't realize before? Yeah, when I... Um, I look back now at the past year, uh, I'd like to start with the positive okay. because uh, it, it, I am so grateful to be in this position, having been a part of building, creating what we have as part of a team. And so today to be in this role um, is truly gratifying for me. And I'm also so excited about our future. Like, we can do so much more with this business. What has surprised me 
is I believed I was ready for the role. I know I'm the right leader at this point in time in our business. And yet uh, I'm the world's best operator. Like I was region president of the South. We were killing it as a team. I can solve pretty much every operational thing that pops up. Now, I don't mean to make light of that. Uh, for me to then elevate to be more strategic, how do I, on a bigger stage with our entire team, build our brand for the future? That has surprised, that was an adjustment for me. Not jumping in to solve some problem. Like when I was leading the South, um, we solved things together. And I got so deep with our clients and our teams in the front line. Um, working with others, that to now be on a bigger stage, um, think strategically how I spend my time. Um, it, it's important. And I'm also seeing our teams are, are looking for more. And how can I, the responsibility I feel to our teams to make their lives easier, simpler to deliver the incredible service they're all caring and trying so hard um, it's important and it, it, it weighs on me I, I, I think back to how can I help our teams do what they're trying to do which is serving our customers what's still the same about you from when you were that dude at the MBA that was like you're, oh. you're, you're, the, you're the dude that was like flashing the flash but never burning so what's what's the same about you about That's from back then but what's different about you now yeah uh I've always been fortunate to be able to work with leaders, work with a team, and get the right things done at that point in time. It's what I, I've always been there, an ability to work with people, to get the most together as a team out of all of us. And so that's been the same. We are in a people business. I keep saying that we're a relationship business. Um, that's the same. That's the same. Understanding what matters most at that point in time and now how do we take that and what are the two or three big things we can do to truly take our growth to the next level and so focusing on our growth in the future uh, is what i'm excited to do that's our challenge that's our challenge but let's go back to you what's the same about you as being that kid in an mba program mm -hmm. what's exactly the same about you from then and what is markedly different like you're like I used to be that way, but now I'm a totally, totally different that way. Oh. Um, what's the same is I still care about people, being part of a team. My values are the same. Um, intellectually, nothing's really changed. Uh, I get it. And so what is new is that realization, how important communication is, how I show up at every meeting, my role as CEO, is something I'm still growing into and learning about. Because uh, I was used to being part of a team where I could present wacky ideas, we could brainstorm, and now I'm seeing I do need to be both more strategic, but what that really means is how I communicate, how I choose to spend my time is even more important. Uh, so me as a, an individual, um, it's being comfortable where others are looking to I have tended to, when people ask me for my advice, I, I would tend to be more dismissive. Hey, you want to hear from me? You sure? Like, you're amazing. I want to hear from you. And I want to hear your story. And now what I'm seeing is our teams are asking me. 
and I have to get more comfortable in sharing my own story as an inspiration for others, um, motivating others. And it, it's something I'm getting more comfortable with. I would have tended to shy away from that. It's not about me, it's about you. Yeah, that you truly are. And I mean, this both as a compliment and also something that I think is important for leaders to manage. Like you truly are like a really like humble guy, which I love. I think that's that's amazing. It's probably it's it's one of your best qualities. And one of the things that I, I've known I've noticed about CEOs that I really admire and like really connect with is like, yeah, you're like humble. And I don't mean that faux humble, like we're humble. But it's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean like you're actually humble. One of the things that I have seen with CEOs who are actually humble is that they have to manage it when they get to the real when they get to that level because it can actually be a bit of a barrier where people are like, that's great, you're humble, but I actually do want, I do want to know what you think. I'm I'm learning more on how to do that. Um, I'm so fortunate. I I get these inspirational emails from my team who um, point out things about me, uh, whether it's a role model, whether it's my recent journey on weight loss and health and high performance. And I have been, just somewhat dismissive of that, not wanting to engage. At the same time, I need to step up into that because people are looking to all of us as leaders, as role models, and I'm getting more comfortable with it. Uh, so if you were to think like, if someone who's, people come to this podcast for all sorts of reasons, all sorts mm-hmm. of different kinds of people, and there are people who listen to it who are either eyeing or are making or have just made that transition to CEO role. In fact, I, someone I know is going to listen to this just is going to be making that transition in January. Um, any advice for people who have gone from, let's say, like a president role or a C-suite role, but then now stepping into that CEO role? Any advice about anything really could be about leadership, self-care, any of those things about people who are very specifically making that transition? Yeah, for me, I, my advice would be uh, understand what got you to where you are today um, has been incredibly successful. And how do you think about staying balanced to true, to being true to who you are as a leader, as well as, hey, it's new. And there are some new things to stretch yourself in. And so understanding who you are and what won't change with maybe some things need to change. And so for me, my values are still the same, what I care about, still the same. At the same time, I'm learning. I need to step into more communication. I need to step into being able to motivate and inspire others in a different way. And um, being true to yourself at the same time is recognizing you do need help. Maybe you do need a coach. Uh, It is something I highly recommend. Getting outside perspective when you as a leader. is something I think we all need. Totally, totally. I, you hit on so many things there. Like the idea of communication is being on that elevated platform where it's, where it's like, I, I do hear this a lot from CEOs where it's like, damn, like now it's like everything I say is like very, very serious. And kind of like, oh, I kind of miss how I used to be able to just chop it up with people. And it is, it is that, it is that you're losing a little bit of that ability. And it's also an opportunity to get really good at chopping up with people in a different way where you're, you are more mindful of what you're saying, but you also understand the parameters of how you can still play comfortably. And I think for, for a lot of CEOs that are truly humble, just like decent, really like 
good, easy people. That's always a journey to figure that out. And sometimes working with a coach helps. Sometimes just having a good, solid mentor or board member you work with. There's all all sorts of different things. But you said something that I do think is the core that you've got to have someone who partners with you on it. We all have these ways of doing things that are normal and they've helped us and they've helped us grow. But I'd say, like again, being uh, being the owner of a of a quite small business, sometimes I forget that even in that small business, like I have an elevated platform and mm-hmm. I have to like mind how I'm talking, how I'm engaging. It's a real interesting journey for people because you got to stay who you are, but you also have to understand how that who you are can still evolve, grow, elevate, become that. And I often find that people are so worried about like, oh, I want to stay who I am. It's like, hey, who you are is not who you were when you were five or 15 or 35. Like you're actually quite a different person this whole way. And in fact, even the person you are right now, people aren't like, like a pen. A pen is essentially one thing. People are more like a Swiss army knife where there's a lot of different versions of you. It's also oh, sure. a knife. You're different. You're different when you're in different audiences, different situations. Like you're different when you're sitting on a plane than you are when you're sitting in a car. It's all just different. It's about just knowing how do you want to show up in, in these different things. So there's like a consistent through line in yeah. all of those. Yeah, it's been so gratifying for me as I travel around our different offices. Um, the two or three new ideas I have in our business to see them come to life, people talking about it, gravitating towards it. Um, it, it highlights for me that we have an incredible team that will wants to do better. Um, my role as CEO, uh, charting a new path together with the team, like we are so aligned and to see those words come together in a new path, a new vision for us. At the same time, it reminds me of, okay, be careful what you say, because that becomes you know the new directional reality. So cutting out the casual humor, the jokes, um, you know, I have had to work on that. You know, the, the comments about, okay, I'm here, we're gonna fire everybody. Like, do not do that, right? Do not do that, it's not funny, because, um, you know, I see, oh, I can't believe I just said that on your podcast. Like, we're not firing anybody. <laughs> Um, but that, that is what matters. Our teams are, I, I see it, they're look, looking, looking to me now and looking, looking to all of us uh, as leaders to lead it. So well, if there's one person I have faith in, it's you. <laughs> and I, I'm, uh, of course, a big believer, big fan. Now, as we're closing off the podcast, A, you did great. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, I did. Okay. So I'm going to ask you three questions and they're going to get more difficult from question to question to question. But before we go down there, wow. where should people learn more? How can people learn more about First Service Residential? Is there anything you want to point people to? Anywhere where people want to look you up? Anything that you want to share? We'll put the links also in like the, the whole thing around the podcast. But anything you want to share now where you'd encourage people to look, check out any books you want to encourage people to read, anything like that? Oh, uh, we you can find us online, firstserviceresidential.com. Uh, our LinkedIn is really interesting. It is where we tend to post kudos, learn more about us. And um, anyway, we're easy to find. So I would suggest any of your listeners who want to show up and learn more about us, just go to our website. Okay. Any books, movies, anything you want to shout out that you're really excited about now enjoy? Oh, there are many books uh, that I personally have my team read. Anybody, we chatted about talent. Um, I'm a huge advocate of Hugh by Jeff Smart. Follow what he says. 
Just do it. Okay. Just do it. And you mentioned new leaders stepping into a role. Uh, now you're in charge. Uh, I highly encourage anybody who's stepping into a new leadership role, read that book. And again, it's just follow it. Heck yeah. What it says. All right. You ready for these three questions? No, but go for it. Okay. Question one. In what kind of, what would be the situation where you and I would find our, to, ourselves together in a jungle? Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Here's what I know about you. Okay. Here's the scenario. Okay. You and I have a common mission. Mm-hmm. We find the coolest 5K race yeah. in the craziest place. Yeah. And there's a fabulous restaurant at the end of it. Perfect. Okay, I, that's actually, of all the scenarios you could have said, that was just really well done on your feet. Excellent, great answer, okay. Second, super tough question. What would you, from your perspective, say, those were, these are the three best sci-fi movies or TV shows of all time? Oh my God, I'm gonna punt this one. So, I, okay, I grew up, Star Wars, the original, mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. for some reason, just continues to be one of the all-time worst shows ever made. And that's what I grew up on. And you loved it, though. And I loved it. Right. I had to do that. Right. And today, I mean, Mandalorian as the current. Why are you saying you're going to punt that? You said I'm going to punt, and then you did it. <laughs> now, welcome to Life with DC. Okay. That was a great answer. All right. Third one. Hardest one. If you were to say, what is the best piece of business advice or leadership advice you've ever gotten from a person that you actually have met and interacted with that you still live by today, what would it be? Oh, so the advice personally I got. What's interesting about this question now is I got the same advice from two mentors. And way back, it was early career, um, the advice I got was sharpen your elbows, be more direct, Stop apologizing for your decisions. So I was doing that, I'm going to say, apologizing for my opinion. And uh, it did two things for me. Well, first was understanding that communication matters. So the minute a leader says, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but, and gives advice, uh, I was doing that. I was doing that early career. And the advice I got was, you're a leader. You're in the room. Your opinion matters. Just say it. And so that has always stuck with me. Um, whatever time you are in your career, um, you're there, you're there for a reason to be part of the team in the moment and contribute. Um, the second piece of advice I give to everybody now is understand your reputation as a part of our team. And whatever say about you, how you show up, it does matter and be part of that culture. So I'm gonna leave your listeners with that, which is two pieces of advice. Yeah. Anything else you want to add as we're closing off? No, thank you, Aaron. It's incredible to be here with you. The fact that you've been part of my journey and seeing me and my leadership evolve over, my God, is it a decade? Decade plus. Uh, wonderful to be here and thank you for all that you do. Heck yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, this was a great conversation. I'm going to unpack it a little bit in the outro. And thank you so much for being here, David. It was a huge pleasure. Thank you. All right. With that, Mike, drop the beat. Well, David, thank you so much for the interview and for hosting us uh, at your office. You know, 
what more can I say that I didn't say in the intro and that really David didn't say itself? He's just a decent person. And you know, we can kind of grind our axe about the idea that there's big corporations, but we live in a world where there's big corporations everywhere. And I would way rather have access and uh, a chance to understand the thinking of the people who are at the tops of those companies, like a real view of them. And in this case, you know, I hope everyone who had a chance to listen to this could see that, yeah, there are people who are leading massive organizations, you know, nationwide organizations, or North America-wide organizations, who are just decent people, who have vision, who understand what they want to do, and also have their own challenges that they're working on. You know, the human experience is a super complex one, and I think there's so much stuff that we could, like, in some cases, totally rightfully complain about, but in other cases, kind of get ourselves up a tree on. I really encourage you, like, if you get a chance to meet people who work at a level where you're not used to, like maybe people who are really senior in a company or, or work in huge companies, or people who maybe aren't really senior but work in like, you know, massive organizations in fields that, you know, you, you don't know a lot about, or maybe that you actually find kind of intimidating or challenging, or maybe you don't particularly like. I encourage you to speak to those people, figure out what they're really like, really get a chance to meet them and to hear about their world. I think you might find there's a lot more commonalities between you and them than you expect. I could be wrong, but why don't you test it out? Anyways, uh, I'm feeling really great after this one and I hope you are too. My name is Aram Arslanian and this is One Step Beyond. One step. One.